The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics, power and prejudices. This year, 2024, is an election year in America, a presidential election year. And so we will be doing two podcasts a week, rather than our usual one, because we want to and because we know you can't get enough Americano in your life. I am delighted to be joined today by Patrick Ruffini, who is a pollster at Echelon Insights and the author of Party of the People, Inside the Multiracial Populist Coalition Remaking the GOP. Patrick, good to have you back on. I'm curious about the economy and Joe Biden's poll numbers, because we had some more polls out over the weekend suggesting that Trump's lead is perhaps growing overall. And this is on the back of some very, very good numbers for the American economy earlier in the week. And the Biden administration has been saying for a long time that the economy is going well, but people don't seem to feel it. Now, I think we could say consumer sentiment seems to be picking up in the US. And certainly there's a bit more optimism about the American economy more broadly. And yet this is not translating into support for Biden. What do you think is going on there? I think that what's happening is you've you've seen the rising consumer sentiment numbers, and you've also seen rising ratings in terms of people's overall assessments of the U.S. economy are still quite negative, but um, they've been rising. They're nowhere near where they were at the bottom. And now the bottom was actually back in 2022. So they've been rising for quite a while. And yet Joe Biden really has uh, not really seen much political upside from this. So what is what's going on here? I think part of the dynamic that I think is underappreciated is that uh, it's one thing for these numbers, uh, you know, economic sentiment to improve, maybe from where it was in 2022 at the height of 8% inflation, you know, at the height of potential anxieties about a looming recession. And I think it has bounced back off an extremely low baseline, but it is still quite poor. Uh, So it's one thing for those numbers to improve, but it is quite another for Biden to actually win a matchup with Trump on the economy. People's perceptions of the pre-COVID Trump economy uh, were actually very strong. So uh, polling data from Civics, which is a group that um, really tracks things week to week, showed, uh, I think, the assessments of the economy when Trump was president were plus 50. He was always seen as a strong economic president. And then COVID happened, but I don't think people really held him responsible for what happened during COVID. And COVID really reset, I think, people's sense of pessimism and optimism about the economy, such that um, we're really living in a post, there's a pre-COVID context and a post-COVID context. And I think Donald Trump gets the benefit of having presided over a, a, you know, pre-COVID economy that seemed very strong. And so when you match the two, it's not really just simply about, you know, what is the current perception of Joe Biden's performance on the economy? It's really about how do Biden and Trump match up on the economy? And I think uh, it's going to take a while, let's say. That's not to say, you know, Biden could, over the next six months, continue to chip away 
such that the economy is maybe a little bit of a draw or a narrow Trump advantage. Let's remember in 2020, people thought Donald Trump was better suited to manage the economy and he still lost. Um, so I think that that is the game for Biden. It is not to, it's not possible, I think, for him to beat Trump actually on the economic issue. But I think he, I think he's hoping to narrow the gap on it enough so that his other issues like abortion, democracy can ultimately carry the day for him. To what extent is Trump advantaged by the sort of basic assumption that a lot of people have that Republicans are, or, or the immediate assumption that a lot of people have that Republicans, they may not be very nice, but they're better on the economy. And to what extent can you actually strip the characters of Trump and Biden out of it and say it's just the fact that Republicans are more trusted on the economy? I think it's interesting, right? I mean, I think that this perception that, you know, Republicans are more trusted on the economy is pretty relatively recent, right? I mean, if you looked at certainly perceptions during the Great Recession, right, certainly the perceptions of Republicans then were not very strong. But you do see, I think, Trump in particular has an ability to drive an economic message as somebody who is a business person, really the first business person to be elected president and, you know, really in history, really. I mean, somebody who's not a career politician. And I think his ability ultimately to project confidence about the state of the country and seemingly to exert control over events, which is not simply a function of the economy, right, but it also extends to foreign policy. It also extends to, uh, you know, that where Biden seems just personally a little bit hapless and weak, right, due to his demeanor, due to perhaps his age. You know, he seems like somebody who is not maybe fully in control of what is going on both globally and uh, here at home with the economy. I think Trump, for all his faults, is able to project that confidence in a way that Biden hasn't. And I think that really plays into not just the overall perception of strong leadership. That's also another Trump's strong point in the polls but also his perceptions of the economy. So Trump is a much greater salesman of his own politics, you'd say? I would say he's absolutely, he never stopped selling. It's that Glenn Glary, Glenn Ross movie quote, he's always be closing, and that's what he's doing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, certainly, you know, because I've seen that uh, the White House and Team Biden, if you want to call them that, are often pumping out charts and graphs that are very much, they're often using the same sort of font and style as the Trump campaign did to sort of talk about how great the jobs numbers are. But that doesn't seem to be being reflected. And that may be down to the COVID point that you mentioned. But do you think there might be a lag factor here that because we've had this massive inflation, it's going to take a while for the cost of living crisis to work itself out of the American system? That, you know, if the economy keeps improving, we will see Biden's popularity start to gain and people maybe won't even care if he's not present as a president. If he's in charge of the economy, it's better than the Trump alternative, which may be associated with the chaos of COVID. It hasn't happened yet. And so we've seen actually a substantial, let's say, improvement of economic. I mean, the economic perceptions have moved, but and yet Biden's numbers haven't moved. And I think, you know, to some extent, it's not just about on the margins, right? On the margins, it'll be six or eight more months of, you know, hopefully low inflation numbers, hopefully better, you know, things seeming to be more under control. And yes, that could help on the margins. My question is, what will it take for us to really break the post-COVID economic psychology of the country, uh, to break the sort of sense that things feel unsettled, uh, things feel off, things feel like um, they're out of control, 
in some way, you know, and, uh, you know, certainly the psychological burden of inflation, uh, you know, uh, more so than the actual maybe impact on people's pocketbooks, because people did receive as part of inflation, people did receive wage increases. But I think that the trotting out of the charts and graphs and the economic statistics uh, really does not connect with people when they themselves, you know, their feeling is that I'm having a hard time. And uh, if those charts and graphs don't align with what people's feelings are, that seems arrogant, that seems out of touch, and that further contributes to negative perceptions. But I do think that to what extent, you know, is it going to take ultimately a change in administrations Mm. for this like negative spiral of perception around the economy that really we've been with for four years post COVID to actually break because it's, it's, of course, it's not just about the statistics. It's also about the psychology around the economy. And so it therefore looks as though it will be a change election as they call it, which would benefit Trump. And if you look at the right track, wrong track polls, I think I'm right in saying we're at about a sort of an all time record in terms of wrong track. You know, when Americans are asked, well, do they think their country is on the right track or the wrong track? Whereas a record of Americans answering, they think their country is on the wrong track. And that speaks not just to the economy, but to a broader depression in, in the state of America. Uh, you know, I, I think that we've seen the secular decline, right, in the wrong track number, such that it's not that Biden can't win with a relatively bad wrong track number, but it just seems particularly bad right now. Yeah. And we've seen this sort of secular, like, decline where it used to be, you know, if you had a right track, a wrong track number that was higher than your right track, then you were doomed. And now it's not even, I mean, it's like a three to one wrong track. And, you know, it, even, you know, if that were numbered were to improve, potentially Biden could be reelected, right? But it just seems like over over time, this baseline perceptions have gotten worse, right? I mean, they've been decoupled in many ways from actual economic conditions. The way I would think about this whole idea of a change election, though, is, you know, I feel like in some ways, the 2020 and 2024 elections have flipped. And we're actually now having, let's say, the election that we might have had in 2020, in the sense of we had a strong economy, there was a crisis, right, that really disrupted things, but we had a strong economy, and yet Trump was defeated because of his personal character, right? He was defeated because, you know, he seemed like too much of an agent of chaos. Whereas any other Republican with the same set of facts on the ground, with the same set of economic statistics, would have been reelected, probably in all likelihood. And then, you know, after two years of Republican president, you'd see a Democrat come in. I do wonder if to some extent we're just flipping the order of the elections where the victory Democrats should have had in 2024, they actually got in 2020. And the victory that, uh, let's say, Republicans uh, should have had in 2020, they're actually maybe on track to get in 2024. That's a very interesting way of looking at it. I've, I've never thought of it like that before, but that makes quite a lot of sense to me. I wanted to also ask you about Trump's multiracial coalition, which is uh, something you've written a book about, and certainly within the context of the Republican Party. The NBC poll, I think it was over the weekend, showed Trump with a slight polling advantage among Hispanics, who I think I'm right in saying make up a slightly smaller uh, section of the electorate than African-American voters, but only a little bit. And Biden still with a very, very strong advantage among African-Americans. What should we read into those numbers? 
Well, those numbers have, have shifted pretty dramatically. If you look at both the African-American numbers and the Hispanic numbers from where they were in 2020, they've shifted. Um, really, that has been the big change in Trump's whole standing where, you know, I mean, Trump is winning in this NBC poll by five points. He lost the 2020 election by four points. And you're seeing more polls than not show Trump ahead. A, a key point when it comes to those polls, though, is that we do not have a popular vote for president in this country. We have an electoral college. And in the last election, at least, Trump had an advantage in terms of the electoral college. So it was only a few votes in a few states that really could have flipped it. But if the vote had had been moved by one percentage point, then Trump would have been reelected despite losing the popular vote by more than three points. So if that remains the same, I mean, you are really looking at a Trump landslide in the Electoral College, um, even if he wins pretty narrowly in the popular vote. You do have a series of polls showing him ahead in all of the swing states. And he would potentially, with these kinds of numbers, with any kind of pot, even just by winning the popular vote by one vote, he could win all of the seriously contested swing states. That's not outside the realm of possibility. Now, I think that a lot of the polling movement has been, uh, you know, at least in these early polls around non-white voters, it's been around Hispanics, where Trump lost them by about 25 points in 2020. And some polls have him winning them. Some polls have him within 10 points. Um, Either way, some sort of double-digit shift. You have some signs that the African-American majority for Democrats has frayed a little bit, is breaking a little bit. Now, what's interesting is that when you break this down further, a lot of the shift is happening among... Uh, younger voters, lower propensity voters, um, voters who may not vote in this election. Um, So the real question for Trump is, can he actually bring out uh, a lot of these votes? Uh, Can he actually bring people out to vote? And that's a very different, uh, let's say, mindset and mentality that Republicans have used to have when they were winning these sort of high engaged, highly educated, high propensity voters. Uh, And now it's been almost flipped where the voters who is going to come out for Trump and potentially deliver him a popular vote majority may be just sitting on the sidelines and may not vote at all in the election. That has been a fascinating shift in uh, the political coalitions here in the United States. So is it then the case that the Democrats, who are traditionally the drive-out-the-vote party, trying to get low-propensity voters engaged as much as possible, are they in the position now where actually they don't want to do that? I think they very well might be. And a lot of this is complicated by the fact that you have these segments that are still pretty democratic, but not quite as democratic. So the, the marginal return on them going out and doing get out the vote activities is just much lower than it was in the Obama era at a very minimum. And that's why you kind of see the Democratic pushback to the narrative in the polls is that, well, look at all the special elections. Look at we didn't do as badly in the midterms as we expected to. The special elections have been going pretty Democratic. And, you know, that makes perfect sense if you assume that um, this sort of high propensity voter is more Democratic now, has been trending more Democratic with Donald Trump on the political stage. And that is perfectly consistent with what we're seeing. The question is, will we have a high turnout election or, you know, will the sort of public disgust at, uh, you know, the Trump-Biden rematch, will that lead to a low turnout election that could save the Democrats bacon? this time. But you definitely see Democrats are, in this point in the polling analysis, are really trying to play up scenarios in which, well, if only the people who voted in 2020 vote, right? And that's the same game Republicans used to play. Republicans used to play, well, if only likely voters voted, then we would win, right? You know, that 
aspect of it has definitely shifted. And to to what extent does that mean that the Democrats, not only they want a low propensity voters not to come out, but they need a mood of depression to be hanging over the, the election. I mean, Biden's campaign seems very much to be, well, it's focusing on abortion, but it's focusing very much on Donald Trump and the threat he poses. So it's a sort of gloom election as far as they're concerned. And then going back to this change idea, Trump, although he's gloomy about the state of America, he is the candidate offering the the hope, in a sense. He's the hope candidate in 2024. Yeah, I mean, I, I just wonder how you could obviously create this sense of, let's say, gloom, as you as you put it, and then also create an environment where your voters are more basically excited to come out and vote or more motivated to come out and vote. I think that's a very tricky thing to do that you're obviously trying to do by really driving fear and loathing of Trump. But, you know, I think that the, to the extent, and you see this in some of the young voter numbers, that to the extent that um, you're seeing young voter dissatisfaction with Joe Biden, and those are the lowest propensity voters, the most at risk for not turning out, it's not necessarily that those voters are going to go out and vote for Donald Trump. It is that they may not turn out and they may not just turn out for Democrats. So I think that there's a substantial risk, right, of playing this game where if you you know are banking on, let's say, voter depression and, and turnout being low, I think that there's a high risk, though, that of your voters not turning out too. votes you need to turn out, not turning out. And maybe the voters for the hope candidate, which is Trump, being more motivated ultimately to turn out and being more excited about their vote. You talked about the these low propensity and interestingly young voters in uh, among minorities. To what extent can one be? It's obviously simplistic to do this, but probably the clearest cut cleavage, if that makes any sense, is between people who have a university degree, university qualification, and people who don't. Trump seems to win a large majority among non-college educated voters, and the Democrats and Biden win among college educated voters. Is, is that a useful divider still? It is still a very useful divider, uh, you know, and that has been the, the main divider, particularly among whites uh, in the country. It has really not uh, really been seen. You know, we really haven't seen that much of a divide among non-whites, although that, that is probably going to happen, I think. But that continues to be uh, really the main driver, I think, of just perceptions of Trump, you know, and people be either being positively or negatively polarized around him. You said that as things stand, we could be looking at a, a Trump landslide, not just a victory. Looking at, you know, the Haley's performance in New Hampshire, and I accept that New Hampshire is just one state and an, and an unusual state in many ways. Do you think the fact that she performed so well among independents in certain areas, or better than expected among independents in certain areas, suggests that anti-Trump animus is still a very great driver or will be a very great driver for the Democrats and will bring a lot of independents back towards them as November approaches? I think that the, you know, the New Hampshire environment is interesting in that it is a state that has moved against Donald Trump in the last two elections. So, I mean, if you look at the particular in 2020, he almost won New Hampshire. But in 20, uh, sorry, 2016, he almost won New Hampshire. But in 2020, he did not come particularly close in New Hampshire. And so it is an electorate that is pretty already primed to move against him. I don't really see very much evidence, let's say, in the New Hampshire results 
of, let's say, new opposition to Trump that is new since 2020. And what I see is the same kind of coalition of voters um, that particularly in a state like New Hampshire did mobilize uh, against Donald Trump in 2020, was ultimately successful in winning New Hampshire, narrowly successful in winning the presidency. But I don't necessarily see evidence of a huge shift. But you also just saw a lot of drop off in Joe Biden's vote in working class areas. So in the few precincts, right, I mean, this is it's not a very diverse state, but in the few precincts, you know, that have a decent sized Hispanic population, you see Biden really struggling to crack 50 percent of the vote when he, you know, won 65 percent statewide. So I think it's it, it to me reinforces that the same basic coalitions that were present, particularly in a state like New Hampshire, which is 95 plus percent white, are going to be present in 2024. But, you know, I think you, when you're really talking about Sunbelt states like Georgia, Arizona, those are where the election is going to be decided. Yes. And that leads me on to postal voting, which, of course, played a very significant part in the 2020 election. There is no pandemic going on at the moment, but you would probably expect that once people start postal voting, they tend to continue postal voting. So do you anticipate that there will be a similar proportion of postal votes in 2024? I think there will be a lower percentage of mail-in ballots in 2020. And we already saw this happen in 2022, that certainly it's going to be more elevated than it was the previous historical trend line. I do think that people have become accustomed. But um, when you talk about, I think, the vast majority of votes in 2020 being cast by mail, I think we'll see a shift back to in-person voting. The question I think last time, Republicans, and I think this is probably the decisive factor that lost them the election, was forfeited the the mail-in vote in terms of Trump's animus uh, in really driving a message of, you know, you shouldn't vote by mail, you should vote in person, that sort of being center to his stolen election narrative after the election. And um, you've seen Republicans uh, try to push back on that, you know, particularly in Virginia in, you know, in the most recent off-year elections, you had Glenn Youngkin really in the Republican National Committee pushing actually more Republicans to cast their vote by mail, and they they had some success in doing so. That said, I think it overall will be a smaller percentage, but um, Republicans, at least this time, are, I think there's some signs that they will actually try to be competitive with those votes. And how does that work being competitive? I mean, you target voters you think are likely to vote by mail and you try and drive out their mail votes. It's something the Democrats seem to be very good at. And and the Republicans, we heard in 2020 that, you know, the Democrats should be careful what they wish for with with mail-in voting because Republicans might be more likely to mail-in vote. But that, that didn't actually happen. Yeah, I mean, what you see, I, it really is varied by state historically. So historically, Republicans in a state like California, for instance, have had a reputation of voting by mail more so than the Democrats do. And that flipped in 2020, specifically around the pandemic narrative, both Republicans, you know, in general, tending to minimize the effects of the pandemic. And obviously, voting by mail was something that came along with the pandemic as a social distancing measure. So you had really partisan, a new level of partisan polarization around voting by mail that existed in 2020. And I think that has subsided somewhat since 2020. But nonetheless, you do still have more Democrats based on this new polarization around voting by mail, voting by mail. And the idea is it's not that necessarily you're getting out voters, particularly with early voting and and absentee voting. It's not that you're getting out voters who are new voters, but that you're banking your 
certain voters, the people who are likely to vote for you anyway, so that on election day, you can just concentrate all your resources on getting out new voters, getting out these you know voters potentially Trump needs to get out among African-Americans and Hispanics now, but you're saving all your efforts for getting out your irregular voters on election day. And you're not as focused on banking, let's say. I mean, this idea of banking your vote, right? That's what Republicans are calling it. That if you're a solid Republicans, vote before election day so we don't have to worry about your vote and can just go after these new voters. Yes. So if we could try and take COVID out of it, I suppose we can't really, but if we could try and take COVID out of it, you see 2024 in some ways as a a rerun of 2020 because of, let's not take COVID out of it, because of, and let's not get into stolen election stuff, a lot of voters feel that there was something a bit amiss with 2020, even if they don't think it was a stolen election. It felt like an odd election, let's put it that way. And that in 2024, we're restarting where it should have left off back then. I think to some extent, I mean, this flipped election thing is something I keep returning to because normally I, I think anytime an incumbent runs for re-election, right, under, you know, they're favored to win. And I think that perhaps if COVID not happened, Donald Trump probably would have been reelected, but it would have been pretty narrow either way. But I do think the circumstances under which Trump was removed from office, which are, again, very personality driven, just the exhaustion with his behavior in office, his handling of the racial protests being seen as unpresidential, all those topics. So what happens is you have Biden comes in, defeats the incumbent president, and then you have a series of economic repercussions to, you know, all the COVID stimulus money, all the measures taken in 2020. And so all of the normal second term discontent that you would normally see with a reelected president, which we've seen consistently, and you saw it with George W. Bush, um, and you would have seen it with Donald Trump if you had 8% inflation under Donald Trump, certainly his approval rating would have gone way down. So I think Biden inherited all of the overhang, all of the issues that would have beset Trump in his second term. And, uh, you know, to some extent, he is bearing the burden of what a reelected Trump, right, would have done. And that would have led to most likely a change in the party in power. And it's, by the way, it's something that you in the UK are not uh, immune to, right? I mean, in the sense of, uh, you know, it looking pretty bleak for the conservatives right now. We are in a mood throughout the West and throughout the world of parties in power losing elections. And that seems to be you know, at least right now, the trajectory in the United States. And I mean, traditionally or historically, parties have in power have survived through fear, if you like. And it, I think it's fair to say in 2020, the Democrats won through fear. I mean, there was a lot of fear about the chaos in the streets um, with Black Lives Matter, a lot of fear around COVID and the sense that Trump wasn't in control at all. They seem to be running on fear again in 2024, But from what you said, it sounds to me like that's not necessarily going to be a winning message, unless, of course, there's something to be very, very afraid of, like possibly World War III, but then people will blame Biden for that, would they not? Well, the real variable, of course, is Trump's legal situation, right? So uh, if it's not necessarily fear, but there's just a very practical reality of, or you have some sort of convicted presidential candidate, right? And that that would very likely change the trajectory Mm. for Biden. The question right now is, you know, which of those trials is going to move forward? Um, You have the New York case, which now seems the likeliest to move forward, but also the one that with the least stakes, let's say, involved in terms of people not necessarily 
believing that those charges are as serious as the election interference charges. But that trial has very likely been delayed. So the question is, can Trump delay these trials right beyond the election? Can he avoid getting a conviction? Because that would certainly, you know, that is the big asterisk hanging all over all of this. Yes. Uh, but even that is an unknown. We don't know that that will be bad for Trump. I mean, I think you, you can surmise it would be bad, but um, it certainly won't be good. But but what I do think is, you know, you have a lot of polls right now that are purporting to say that 30 or 40 percent of Republicans either would not vote for Trump if he were convicted or would, you know, consider him unfit for office in terms of some of the polling that's been done in the context of the Republican primary. But, you know, just remember, we've been here before in this situation when the Access Hollywood tape came out, you had similar percentages of Republicans disapproving of that pretty strongly. And then you had also a number of elected officials withdrawing their support of Trump on the Republican side. But then that turns out after a few weeks, the party sort of decides and coalesces and says, oh, well, we've kind of forgotten about this now. Now, I think a legal conviction is certainly a lot more serious. But the question is, you know, particularly if you're talking about a more tawdry a type of example of it, as such as in this hush money case in New York, whether or not the public will see that as as serious or as legitimate as, you know, some of the very serious charges that Trump is facing around certainly the election interference or the documents and the charges as well that he's facing down in Georgia. Yes, the hush money uh, one is the most likely, would you say, to be resolved before the election? At this point, it seems like it, right? I mean, it seems like uh, you have a number of judges, particularly in the documents case, you have a number of setbacks for the prosecution. You know, Trump is certainly appealing his case or trying to make a case he is immune from prosecution. Uh, so that has yet to be decided. But, you know, I think a safe bet, you know, is uh, you know, with a legal process is that there will be delays. Yeah. Um, the question is then not necessarily will they move forward before the election is will we have a verdict before the election? Yes. Patrick, we'll end it there. But thank you very much for coming on to Americano. And please join us again. Thank you so much. It was great to be here. That's it for uh, that episode of the Americano podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. I'd like to thank our brilliant Spectator production team, uh, Natasha Ferroz, my producer, Oscar Edmondson, who's sitting opposite me. And I would like to ask any listeners who have ideas as to who they think I should get on the podcast. Um, we're going to be doing two a week, so that we have to come up with plenty of ideas this year. And often you have much better ideas than I do. So please do get in touch if you have an idea of a guest that you think we should try and get on the show or a subject that you think we haven't covered that we should be covering. And please email that to podcast@spectator.co.uk, or you can get in touch with me directly on Twitter. I think my handle is freddygray31, which is depressingly how old I was when I set up my Twitter account. Okay, please do that. Goodbye.